Welcome to episode 113 of the China Flexpad podcast. I have read the book of Peter Hessler, Rivertown, which he talks about how he spent, I think, the year 1996 in Sichuan on the countryside. It's really inspiring. But now we have a new Peter Hessler Jr., who is called Zach. He came to China and he spent time with the post-90s generation. And today he shares with us what he learned in this experience and how he shares this with both Chinese and international companies trying to understand each other. Welcome, Zach. Thanks, Francis. Thanks so much for having me. I'm the author of a book called Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. It came out with St. Martin's Press in 2018. Um, is now out, I think, six languages. And um, around the same time that my book came out, I started an organization called Young China Group. The Young China Group seeks to provide a people-first perspective on China to help people understand how identity is impacting the economy and politics. We do a mixture of market insights, a style of management consulting, which is helping China-based and globally-based teams collaborate better, equipping them with tools uh, and training to do that more effectively particularly as an American uh, at this moment when it feels like obviously the government is not working particularly well together. People can't travel. Uh, individuals can't travel much back and forth. And so these companies are really the only incentivized bodies to figure out how to make it work. Um, I'm 32. I'm from California originally. Spent most of my time in, in China, in Chengdu, uh, and second and third tier cities. Have been marooned outside of China now for two and a half years, which is the longest since I was 20 years old. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting back. Why does your Chinese open doors when you spend your life out of China for the past three years? I'm doing collaboration research. Um, my collaboration research is entirely bilingual. So it's a U.S.-based. We, we, we do the entire thing in, U, in, in English, in U.S., in English, um, as well in Chinese. And I do hours and hours and hours of interviews with China-based teams virtually, all in Chinese. And I go over the transcript in Chinese. And it takes me about 10 seconds to build trust with that team, or at least establish legitimacy. Whereas otherwise, I'm bumbling through and sort of posturing and being like, oh, have you been to Chongqing? You know, trying to name drop places that you've been. It, it, can, it shows your sort of bona fides with, with a China-based team in seconds rather than trying to establish it over months and years. Uh, it, it's so important for trust. If you had the chance to meet Peter Hessler in person, how would you compare your experience and his experience just based on storytelling? Peter Hessler is sort of the altar towards which many China writers pray and burn our incense. So comparing myself to Peter Hessler is extraordinarily generous. Um, but he absolutely impacted a lot of my journey. I've, I've done the Peter Hessler tour. I've, did, I've been to where he, you know, he spent time in, in Rivertown. He, I definitely look up to him. He was in China at a much different moment. The China that he described no longer existed. And so for people who are interested in learning the language or getting deep into the culture, it's much harder. And this is why I eventually moved from Suzhou is because it was so easy. And again, thinking about that path of least resistance in places like Suzhou and Shanghai and Beijing, it's so easy to fall in with a group of expats and only speak Mandarin on the margins and treat it like a subject that you make an hour for a couple of times a week or five hours for four times a week, which is still a lot. What I was really intent on doing, which was changing my whole life. 
And Peter Hessler just signed up for a program, the Peace Corps, which is an incredible program that sort of did it for him, uh, which took a lot more courage at that, at that moment in history. Me, I felt I had to be a lot more intentional. And there's one last piece to this. And, and Peter Hessler is sort of like in the China writing community is, is thought of a little bit as not just a god, but a monk. I mean, if you read Rivertown, he's, I think he's 27, 27 through 29. He's able to be a dispassionate observer in everything he does in a way that I was never able to fully pull off. And so in Young China, I'm more of sort of like the bumbling idiot who, through my experiences, draws out the culture. Rather than Peter Hester, I think of more as like the consummate New Yorker writer, excellent professional, and never really breaks that veneer. While Peter Hessler was spending time with the farmers and the working class people, then you went into the Jolin Ho. Why Jolin Ho? Why were you so fascinated and what did you learn from them? The post-90s generation in China is really the pivot generation. It's the difference between their parents who were really obsessed with pulling themselves out of a subsistence lifestyle. You know, I think we forget as recently as 1990. When the post-90s generation was born, China's per capita GDP was like 300 bucks. We, we forget how recently China was incredibly poor. That was sort of the China that I had in my head when I went. On early trips to, to Shenzhen from the University of Hong Kong, the first major gap I experienced was the difference between what I began to think of as old China and young China. And old China is not just old buildings or an old way of doing business or state-owned enterprises or the concrete business versus the high-tech business. It's generation gaps. And because China has developed so fast, those generation gaps that we have outside of China get stretched and extended in ways that were just so fascinating to me. And so China really has generation gulfs. And so that gap between how we perceive China, basically based on outdated stereotypes, And what I was experiencing on the ground just became an obsession, trying to see how deep I could get, trying to see how obsessed I could be. It was, to be totally honest, it was a bit of a luxury of youth, but it was enormously fascinating. And, and I think this generation really is going to be responsible for defining what it means to be Chinese in the modern world, the identity generation. How do you make money watching the Jolin Ho? I still don't get that. Writing a book, you're basically burrowing underground for years uh, with no real potential payout. And then on the day that your book releases, you hope that it gets attention. But I was very lucky, which is different than most books, that the topic was good and it got well-reviewed in a couple of major places. And so whereas I thought I was going to become a journalist or an academic, I had the opportunity to think, okay, there's some real interest here. You know, it got written up in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. It, was, it, it got pretty favorably reviewed in ways that I never anticipated. I started to think, how could I keep doing the research I'm doing for the book, but take the resources from the private market and funnel that towards the research that I want to do? I was in second and third tier cities in China for the most part. And then when the book came out, I was starting to get calls from global banks, which was like a huge surprise. And, and they'd fly me to their headquarters and I would negotiate a speaking fee, which I had some exposure to the speaking world. I'd be telling institutional investors from around the world, what's the deal with young China? I didn't even fully understand why they were so interested, but the interest was this. It was, 
They have these equity products or stock market in China. And the stocks that they could invest in, China A shares, were very consumer heavy and different than in other places around the world, particularly, you know, you think US and Western Europe, where most of the wealth is still aggregated at the top of the demographic pyramid. You know, in the US, you have millennials and Gen Z who make trends. It's still boomers who move markets. In China, most of the spending power was with young people. If you Google young China or you happen to pick up the Wall Street Journal or you listen to a podcast that I was on or a radio station or you called me and I answered the call. What kept happening was people who saw me speak or people who heard me on the radio or people who were in the audience or knew a guy in the audience or saw a video clip, they'd reach out. And so I, I realized that there could be a business there. It's not fully what I'm doing now, but it was a gateway into realizing that this topic is something that the, the private market was interested in enough that I could start to fund my own, my own work without having to join an institution. What are Chinese companies doing right now in order to go global and to build their exposure worldwide? And how are you involved in this? Over the last couple of years, the consumer story has really been eclipsed by politics and everyone's felt it. But if you're from a global company or a Chinese company trying to go global, as well as just the incredibly large consumer marketplace, They were creating products that were more socioeconomically proximate to developing countries around the world. For example, Xiaomi phones. Most Americans aren't so interested in Xiaomi phones, but here in Mexico, I, you know, I got to hang out with the folks at Xiaomi um, who are working in Latin America. The product makes so much sense. Um, and what they really need is an e-commerce environment to thrive. And in Mexico, only five to six percent of phones are bought on e-commerce e platforms. But similar to what happened in India over the last couple of years, that's expected to change. The first generation of Chinese companies going global, particularly Alibaba, they, they've sort of failed. They have not created the impact that they really should have when you think about how good of companies they were. And the only real success that everyone can kind of point to is TikTok. And TikTok's success came from being phenomenal product, but really whitewashing their brand so that people who were using it, particularly in, in North America, didn't realize it was a Chinese company until it was too late. And so many Chinese companies are negatively impacted by brand China in some of these major markets. What I'm starting to watch and really interested in researching is how these companies are effective around the world. And then those who are interested in those major markets How do they build teams that can collaborate and execute at a high level? Because many Chinese companies are doing the exact same thing that German companies, that American companies, that Brazilian companies, that Swedish companies did when they first went to China, which is go and have foreigners run the show who don't really know the local market, who can't really communicate to the local players, who can't do business development because they don't know the local customs and can't speak the local language, who can hardly manage the local team and struggling. And so the question will be, how quickly can Chinese companies learn the lesson that most global companies who were successful in China had to, which is how do you localize when you go globally in a way that allows you to keep the, the special sauce, you know, that makes the Huawei's and the Xiaomi's so effective and also be effective when you when you land in a country who doesn't do things the way that you do it in China. So if I understand correctly, you need a Huawei or Alibaba, but you need to call it Bosch in Germany, right? Well, that's what it was. And, and again, this is why I think not US and Western Europe is so interesting because most of these countries, maybe with the exception being Mexico, 
But when you look at Brazil, when you look at Peru, when you look at Argentina, Colombia, they don't have negative baggage around brand China that Americans do. I would walk in with my Huawei phone with a client meeting and people would talk about it. And again, that was a hot moment for Huawei domestically. You know, in Egypt, where I spent a lot of time pre-COVID, the Middle East, in, in a lot of Southeast Asia, there's different brand perceptions of what it means to be Chinese that don't get in the way. And particularly when the product is great, which it is, you know, great product, bad perception. If you don't have the perception issue and you're just competing on products, there's a number of Chinese companies who should be doing extraordinarily well. What is your role and my role in this play? You know, I work for a Chinese family-owned business in the second generation. So my job is exactly this. Take a Chinese company which is doing pretty well in China and helping them to go global. But I'm based in China and you're based overseas. So how do opportunities arise for FlexPets in China and abroad working for real Chinese companies? So in January of 2020, I took a two-week trip for speeches to the United States from Beijing. I packed up a bag, two weeks, thought it was going to be back. Uh, January 24th, my book was coming out in China. Uh, and so we were filming something with Tencent, actually in Wuhan. I, I delayed that flight. And so for the last two and a half years, I've been scrambling, trying to figure out how to run a China-oriented business from not China. Uh, so I, I think I could speak to that more than I could a while ago. Um, so there are two parts of the equation, right? There's Whatever your home country is, you know, I feel lucky that it's the U.S. So there's there's large companies here who are interested in the China market. But wherever you feel like, you know, I feel like I have two bases and I'm doing bridge work. And so a foot in both. And at first, I was working primarily with American companies who weren't entering the Chinese market, but were trying to understand it well. And so I was really tip of the spear for insights and helping them understand local dynamics, not better than their local teams, but help to translate and contextualize in a way that local teams often struggle with. You know, there's the Panguanjie Qing, uh, the, the observer sees clearly, like it's difficult to write it down on a piece of paper and be like, hey, this is like a service that I offer. But once, and this is again, the luxury of writing, once people can sort of hear it and see it, they recognize it, it's something that's of value to them. And not everyone, but some. And so I was sort of the shepherd for executives at some global companies and, and a fair amount of investors and just understanding China better. And so that's one side of it. What's interesting and, and so different is the Chinese side of it. Um, in 2019, 2020, I was starting to do some work with some China-based teams who were interested in a non-variant, so a not consensus view on young people. And they were starting to call me, which I was surprised. And so helping them not only understand the local market in a way that they weren't, and I was really helping them with second and third tier youth research and insights, but also helping them to explain their work to the global team. Uh, in this case, specifically that I'm thinking of in Germany, who just didn't understand China in an accessible, understandable, and actionable way. And so good bridges are two ways. I actually love working with Chinese companies. I do think working full-time in a Chinese company comes with a much different lifestyle, and you should be real about that. But one of the interesting things that we're seeing, uh, and particularly with this collaboration research, in some ways, working at a pure Chinese company is better than working at a, at a foreign company based in China. And that's kind of new. And the reason is this. People who are working at global companies based in China have to do their nine to six or whatever your hours are. And then from six to 11 every night, You spend five hours on the phone with people back in your home country doing what, what we call the explanation burden, which is explaining to them the local dynamics, which is explaining to them how regulatory works and why it's different. 
explaining to them, you know, why people in China are far more mobile first or willing to eat out or, you know, whatever the local dynamic is that's intuitive for an all Chinese company, it's not for a global company. And so there's this really interesting dynamic where it used to be working for a global company, if you were Chinese or foreign, was seen as better. Now there's real attrition and a, and a, and a good case for poaching for local companies that are getting increasingly competitive to hire great talent away from global companies who just want to be able to hit the ground running, who want to be agile, who want to be able to speak the same language, both literally and figuratively with, the, with their colleagues. So I do think there's opportunities for bridge work on, on all sides. And being the, I don't want to say translator, because that, that doesn't include analysis, but creating a context and an ecosystem, building a world so that people can feel, see, taste it in a way that, that they can act on is a useful and valuable skill. So how do the Jolin Ho come in here? I think Jolin Ho, they could do this job as well. So why do they need people like you and me to explain to both sides how China works? And also to explain to the Chinese companies how the US or Germany or Brazil works? Because there are so many Jolin Ho in these countries. So why hire FlexPets? So this is, this is something I think of not just for why I hire FlexPets, but um, the difference between being, I mean, you termed it a China watcher, but somebody who, who shares ideas with the public versus just knows a lot about a thing. Right. There's knowing a lot about a thing. And then there's there's flexpat work or or, you know, whatever, whatever term you prefer. I think of it in terms of of an archaeology analogy. There were years when I was researching the post 90s generation where I was just digging and I was obsessed. So it'd be digging and scraping and, and wiping and cleaning and uncovering and examining and discovering. And it was like this incredible feeling. Um, and, and for a lot of local talent, it's, it's that feeling of being deep in your niche and knowing what you know. The work of, of what I do, and I think the hardest part, and it's why it's the difference between being just a pure academic or even a pure market specialist, is you then have to claw your way out of that hole you've been digging and stand next to it and explain to people how what's down that hole is so interesting and worth their time, which is hard because there's a lot of holes that people are interested in. And there's a lot of stuff that, that can grab people's attention. Being able to not only know the stuff, which, which is, I think, about half of my job, just knowing the topic. Then the second half is being able to explain it in a way that people can understand and act on. And often what I find with, with local teams, and by the way, for Young China Group, I only work with, with local researchers. Um, and, it's, and it's for the exact reasons that you're describing. They just know the market. What often is missing is transferring knowledge into insight. And I don't want to be so arrogant to think that I, am, I have a monopoly on insight. I definitely don't. But that transition is what I've found has has allowed me to be employed and, and for Young China Group to gain some success and stature in, in the relevant field. That's the extra step, which makes the what makes it unique. So if you work with Jolin Ho as researchers, if I understand correctly, why do people like you and me still need to speak Chinese? Because they probably speak English, right? Being able to speak Chinese is not a work tool. It means that you understand people, It means that you've spent time in families. Uh, it means that you've put effort in on the ground. So much of the culture of Chinese is hard baked into the, the DNA of the language. And so learning Chinese is not just learning how to order stuff or to do market research. It's excavating a, a culture. And that includes modern stuff as well, all the new slang. And you have these incredible global young people who traveled abroad studied abroad, who come back, who speak ace English, who spent 10, 15 years of their life 
changing their mental diet. And this sort of arcs back to what I talked about with learning Chinese. I think of it as changing your mental diet because you are what you eat. If you feed yourself only Chinese, what's going to start processing is only Chinese. Same for English. There's a massive availability bias of only working and judging your perceptions of a place based on the top tier student who speaks English, who's the most globally exposed, who's the most globally cosmopolitan, who knows how to pander to your biases, because that's likely what got them in the position that they're in. It, it's not level footing. And I call this the Shanghai fallacy, actually. I talk about this all the time, um, because it, it seriously impacts analysts and thinkers who are based in places who live in that ecosystem that that is primarily English first, made up of that globally cosmopolitan top 10% of the country, because only 10% of the country has a passport. And so if these people are spending lots of time studying abroad and traveling the world, then you're already in rare air. And, and just being cognizant of that is already being cognizant of one of the bigger biases that I think impacts understanding of China today. Zach, looking back on your career, which you shared so much about this, I really love that you, that you were so open about how this developed and what you did, step one, two, three, four, five. Now, just if you sum this up, what are you really thankful for the way it worked out? I wrote Young China because there's a place that felt like home. It's hard to feel empathetic for a macro economy. It's easy to feel empathetic for people. And so I'm just so enormously grateful for the amount of like roommates I had who just like walked me through difficult concepts. And, you know, I, I'm thinking of this one that I lived with for nine months who I was just texting with last night who like we had four white whiteboards on the wall and he would just sketch it. He was a he was a Chinese philosophy student at Sichuan University. And we'd spend hours just sketching out the difference between Western and Eastern philosophy. And like he broke down Confucian concepts to me that would have taken me years to figure out. And like people just with that patience and generosity of spirit, there's no way I would have been able to write a book. And if I hadn't written a book, because without a book, you're just you're you're often someone who feels like they're super smart about an issue, but no one necessarily believes that you are. Like you don't. So I feel very lucky that I was able to codify some of what I was seeing in the research I was doing um, and given me an excuse to, to deepen and further invest in doing that research and being able to do that first instead of doing it on the side. And I got very lucky, the amount of people who were willing to help me along the way, and that the book got traction, man. Most books come out to crickets, the vast majority. I, I feel incredibly lucky that that it resonated with people. And And the last piece on this, the highest compliment I've been given is kids who read it for second generation Chinese who live globally say they feel like they understand their parents and cousins better. And then people who have relationships who are, you know, bicultural, which are, which, you know, come with their challenges, say they feel like they understand their spouse better after reading, which is just awesome. Like the idea that I might be helping a couple marriages get, get on their feet is, is a really gratifying thought. And it, and it makes me want to keep doing, keep doing the work. So what happens if you're 40, like me, I'm 39, and it's all, you're just back to the bank or whatever? It could happen. And and truthfully, it felt like it might happen these last couple of years, right? Like, the, especially being on the outside when you're only, you know, it's it's just like the, the headline stuff, which is so fear-driven. And so when, again, when the only version of China that you're exposed to is primarily headlines, unfortunately, I have more than that, but it, it gets difficult to contextualize. So I was imagining, what if this doesn't work out. And it wasn't so crazy. You know, I was hit really hard early COVID. I was doing a fair amount of conference speaking, and I was also doing a lot in the travel industry as well as investors. And so the travel industry and conferences also obviously got hit in the mouth. They both basically ceased to exist. Having to pivot and adapt 
I think is one thing that living in China for a long time really equips you for. And I think for the flexpats who who live in China over a long period of time, I'd like to think that we get some of that. We get some of that ability to be adaptive and adoptive, to roll with the punches. I'm cognizant of one other thing, uh, and that's once you get a certain amount of success, I'm not living in a balsa wood bunk bed hostel on the outskirts of town anymore. And so much of my environment I had, I had intentionally constructed to, to create a viewpoint that was unique. And so what I'm thinking about now for the next decade, not the last one, is how do I create a similar intellectual ecosystem that's going to that's gonna drive the sorts of insights and, and unique points of view that I really want. And I'm not Peter Hessler, by the way. Peter Hessler, I, you know, I wish. But Peter Hessler is a Puritan and he's an, he's an author and writer till the end. He, I don't think he's ever taken a buck from, from a bank. Yeah, thinking about how to make sure that, 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 the, that the ideas and the perspectives are unique enough and that the ability to translate them into understanding and action for the rest of the world is substantial enough. And making sure that I'm investing in the things that are still consistent with my morals, which is why this collaboration research has really lit me up this last year, because it's something a positive thing that I can contribute, even if it's not the form that I was going after when I was 24, 25, 26, running around Western China. If you have the chance to give advice to young flexpats who are 25, what would you say? What was the key to your success and what could be the key to their success? I think this is the biggest opportunity for the next 10 years for, for people who want to work in the corporate space. You have great, really great Chinese companies with phenomenal products who have a very difficult time going abroad. And even in Mexico City, as I'm doing interviews with a bunch of Chinese companies here, what they're talking about is the biggest challenge they have is finding local talent who speaks Chinese. Because ultimately, if the executives back home are communicating in Chinese, which they are, The ability to speak the language, understand the culture is the difference between being promoted to a manager or not. And so for these global, for these Chinese companies going global, if you can get the language skills down as well as having the professional skills, which by the way, every post 90s who speaks English has, then you can provide real legitimate value and be ultra competitive on, on that specific job market. And then you got to sniff out those opportunities, you know, like, I don't want to think of a gross analogy here, but you got to find them. Uh, but they're there and, and they're out there. And, um, you know, you mentioned LinkedIn before, Francis. I, I can think of a dozen people who I, who I know who work at global companies who are Chinese, who are based abroad. You know, their inbox is open. If you have the skills and, and you're willing to develop those relationships, seek them out. But it's, it's not the era that it was before. You're competing on a different playing field with really global, young, talented kids. You do have something that will make you unique. You need to equip yourself with the right skills to be able to compete. Zach, like, how did you learn Chinese in the first place? Peter Hassler was for me uh, in Rivertown. He learned Mandarin in two years. So I was like, fixate on that. You don't learn a language. You get used to it. And so I quit my language class. I moved in with a bunch of Chinese roommates. And over the next really 18 months, was primarily studying on my own, investing in one-on-one -on -one classes so I wouldn't be from sundown to, or from sunup to sundown, listening to people, you know, Germans, Middle Easterns, Americans, Canadians, speaking bad Chinese all around me, you know, really impacting my understanding of the language and, and invested in an ecosystem where the path of least resistance would lead me to good Chinese. Um, and that includes in Chengdu, I was living 
in a hostel on the outskirts of town for about eight months with just a rotating cast of young people. Um, and I really credit that period in my life. This is my second year in China with, with giving me not just functional Chinese, like you can pass HSKs, but Chinese that feels personal, down to earth, real, and, and pretty quickly can earn trust with folks um, in, in a way that's different than just textbook Chinese. And this is a very, very difficult topic to push across. So I'm really impressed by the way that you explained this from your point of view. Thank you so much. Thanks, Francis. As you all know, I'm a great fan of learning Chinese. You can understand my approach in episode 75, which I did together with Sophia. And Sophia is a real expert in learning Chinese. I've learned so much from her. We are going to have a public episode about learning Chinese on January 12th at 9 p.m. All the details will be in the show notes. Please don't hesitate to join us. And in this episode, Sophia and I will share our stories, how we learn Chinese. We are going to explain to you how you can learn Chinese on your terms. We are going to build an action plan which really works. Educate yourself how you can learn Chinese what you can do when your motivation fails you, how you can hold yourself accountable, and how you can just keep going until you see results. Learn Chinese on your terms.